Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whatever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and I've got lots of news and information to get to before we get to this week's feature presentation, so let's get started. Now, I'm still working on the second half of Season 3 as we speak, but I'm also still working on some studio upgrades that will hopefully improve the sound quality here, so the recording is still pretty slow going. Hopefully the wait will be worth it. In the meantime, I've got some exciting news for those of you looking for more content. Starting now and until September, I'm turning off the billing for the Patreon page. I'll still be publishing content there, but I won't be charging until after August. So if you join the Patreon anytime between now and August, the only thing you'll pay is your initial payment for whatever tier you join. Unfortunately, Patreon wouldn't allow me to turn off the initial payment, so that'll still be charged, but no monthly payments until September if you choose to stay that long. If you want, feel free to join up now and cancel in August before any monthly payment is due. I won't be offended, I promise. I just want to share the content with everybody, especially considering it's taking me a while to get some new content out there. And what content is it that I would like to share, you ask? Well... I did the turn of the screw for one, and then there are seven episodes of the Patreon-exclusive series Spot the Lie, with an eighth episode airing soon, along with four editions of Simply Stories, with another one of those coming soon, and more of each of those are planned for every month. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, head on over to patreon.com syypodcast or follow the link in the show notes. Oh, and if you do decide to join during this time, you'll still get all the benefits associated with membership. I'm happy to send any new patrons their merchandise now, or I'm also happy to send it when normal life resumes. And if you decide to cancel before life gets back to normal, I will still send your merch whenever you are ready for it. And if you have any questions about any of this Patreon stuff, or anything I'm about to talk about from here on out, just shoot me an email over at syypodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on social media, any of the platforms, it's all at syypodcast. Now the next thing I want to tell you about is the fourth annual live stream for The Cure. And before I get into that, here's a promo from my good friends, the Epic Film Guys, to tell you what is going on with that live stream. Here they are. Can you imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for our fourth annual live stream for the cure. And this year, we need your help more than ever. Please join us May 27th through May 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. I was fortunate enough to be a part of the Livestream for the Cure last year, and I had a great time with it. And I am honored once again to be a part of this great event, and my segment will be on May 30th at 10 o'clock p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. If it's possible for you to participate, please do tune in live for that. It'll be a lot of fun, and for those of you who are able to donate during my segment, I do plan on having some sort of giveaway for you. Even if you're not in a position to be able to donate, you should definitely tune in. There's no pressure there. I'll have more details as the event gets closer, what story or stories I'll be reading, prizes available, things like that. But for now, make sure you add the live stream to your calendar and plan on tuning in often, but especially Saturday night at 10 p.m. 
that is where you can show up and show out for stories of your and yours to help fight against cancer. And there's one more thing you should know about before we get into some stories here. I'm somewhat late to this particular party, but you may have heard of the platform Podchaser, which is a relatively new podcast directory. It's donating 25 cents to Meals on Wheels' COVID-19 response fund for every review left on their platform. And if podcasters reply to the review, they will double it. Not only that, but Libsyn is matching the donations up to $1,500 for reviews left on podcasts that are hosted on their platform. Now, this podcast is hosted on Libsyn, so go to Podchaser today and leave a review for all your favorite podcasts, including stories of your and yours. You can even review individual episodes. In fact, you can see my creator profile associated with this podcast, and you can find and review any episode of any show that I've been on. If you review any episode that I've been on, I will definitely reply. So every review left for this show will net a dollar towards Meals on Wheels COVID-19 response fund. And a review of any other episode I've appeared on will net at least another 50 cents as long as I'm able to reply. But this only lasts until April 30th. So make sure you get to Podchaser today and leave a review. Now, it's time to get to the feature presentation. I wanted to get you some new content on here since it's been a while, but I also knew I wouldn't have time to get a story fully produced in the time frame that I wanted, so I've got a poem for you. Now, I've mentioned here before that I'm not much of a poetry guy in general, but this is more of a blunt object than flowery prose. Today's poem is called Dead Man's Hate, and it's written by Robert E. Howard. Now, that's the same Robert E. Howard that you heard from when we did a Conan the Sumerian story a while back. It's always my inclination to say Conan the Barbarian. But after the Howard poem, I'll be running back a classic Edgar Allan Poe episode featuring some of my favorite stories, The Raven, The Telltale Heart, and The Mask of the Red Death. It also features the first original submission that I ran here on the show. I know a lot of people go for the comfort food type content in times like these, which, you know, is things that maybe tend to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. For me, for whatever reason, my mind tends to go towards the darkness in times like these. Not because I'm a cynical guy, I'm actually pretty optimistic and a happy person in general, but there's something that just attracts me to these uh, horror stories. I don't know why that's my comfort zone, but it is what it is. And we're going to dive right into the darkness after this word from another show on the Indie Blast Podcast Network. The legend has it in early 1900, a young lady was raped, murdered, and hung under the Hogback Bridge in Hermitage, Pennsylvania. To this day, if you drive up to the bridge after midnight, turn your car off, leave your keys on the bridge, after five minutes, your car will not start. A green light will come up from underneath the bridge towards your car. Or worse yet, the ghost of the murdered girl is in the back seat of your car. This and many other stories can be found on Ghosts in the Valley podcast available on iTunes and all other downloaded sites. This is Al Cooley from Ghosts in the Valley. Dead Man's Hate by Robert E. Howard they hanged John Farrell in the dawn amid the marketplace. At dusk came Adam Brand to him and spat upon his face. Ho, neighbors all, spake Adam Brand. See ye John Farrell's fate. Tis proven here a hempen noose is stronger than man's hate. 
For heard ye not John Farrell's vow to be avenged upon me, come life or death? See how he hangs high upon the gallows tree. Yet never a word the people spoke, in fear and wild surprise, for the grisly corpse raised up its head and stared with sightless eyes. And with strange motions, slow and stiff, pointed at Adam Brand and clambered down the gibbet tree, the noose within its hand. With gaping mouth stood Adam Brand like a statue carved of stone, till the dead man laid a clammy hand hard on his shoulder bone. Then Adam shrieked like a soul in hell, the red blood left his face, and he reeled away in a drunken run through the screaming marketplace. And close behind, the dead man came with a face like a mummy's mask, and the dead joints cracked and the stiff legs creaked with their unwanted task. Men fled before the flying twain or shrank with bated breath, and they saw on the face of Adam Brand the seal set there by death. He reeled on buckling legs that failed, yet on and on he fled. So through the shuddering marketplace, the dying fled the dead. At the riverside fell Adam Brand with a scream that rent the skies. Across him fell John Farrell's corpse, nor ever the twain did rise. There was no wound on Adam Brand, but his brow was cold and damp, for the fear of death had blown out his life as a witch blows out a lamp. His lips were writhed in a horrid grin like a fiend's on Satan's coals, and the men that looked on his face that day, his stare still haunts their souls. Such was the fate of Adam Brand, a strange unearthly fate, for stronger than death or a hempen noose are the fires of a dead man's hate. As you know, every week I ask for your stories to be a part of the show. Well, this week I've got a special treat for you as we've received our first original piece. That comes to us from one Matthew McNish. Matt runs a writing blog called The Quintessentially Questionable Query Experiment in which he offers free query critiques to new writers. And there's a link in the show notes to the blog and some of the critiques he's done to date, so if that's something you can use, be sure to check that out and hit Matt up. It's also worth mentioning that Matt's blog has been named as one of the best 101 websites for writers by Writer's Digest, so he knows what he's doing. And it should be noted here that this is a short piece, probably more of a vignette than a full-on short story, but I've noted before that I am a lover of language, and this hits that particular sweet spot particularly well. So, without further ado, here is this week's first presentation. Lake Argo by Matthew McNish he watched the gray mist fall languidly off the glass-flat surface of the cold, dark lake, its twisting vapors the only thing that moved in the silence. Morning stalked still and secret through the trees as dawn approached, nothing more than a subtle, desperate lightning of the far-domed firmament. Ancient. Timeless. Infinite. The lingering dew awoke every sleeping odor held within an earthen mouth, 
dirt, worms, decay, fungi, wet leaves, pine, life. The world stirred. A ripple on the water, a fluttering of leaves in the trees, the whistling warble of a nearby songbird, a gentle waft of warmer air against the skin. He stood stiller than a statue, his hand firm around his bow, his toes cold and stiff in the chilled leather of his boots. His breathing was slowed to a pace that rivaled hibernation, but his mind was sharp and focused. He drank the world in through his senses as he stood and watched and considered. It had been a long night spent in vigil, the threat of danger never far away. This was the frontier, and his people knew of the coming enemy. They were resigned against it. His duty was to watch, and then to warn. Perhaps to fight one day, if Mother of the Forest forbid, it came to that. He shrugged, stretched his neck, and spat. His people were peaceful, but they would defend their land with determination. Damn the horde to the stony depths of the deep black wastes. They could choke and writhe and wither into nothing there for all the care he gave them. Suddenly he heard a cry, a ghostly call so ethereal in the lifting fog of the charging morning that it begged the question, Am I still within this life or have I crossed over into some other world where time and matter are but rumors of their former selves? And then he knew. It was the lake bird of the boundary waters, heralding the breaking dawn with a call as clarion as the horn of a rider, diving headlong into the great red battle at the end of history. Yet, for him, it was but the beginning. Thanks again to Matt McNish for that submission, and for you other writers out there, there is room for you on the show, whether you're featured with another story or whether you've got one long enough for a whole episode, send it in to syypodcast at gmail.com for consideration. Now, as you may have noted in the title to this episode, we have got another classic author to feature this week and our first repeat visitor to the show. This is the fulfillment of a request from Debbie out in Newark, Delaware, who also happens to be my mom. So even if I didn't love Edgar Allan Poe, which I do, you know I'd be filling this request anyway. And Debbie requested that we take on both the Telltale Heart and the Raven this week. And since there was still time left to fill after those two, I went ahead and did a third story called The Mask of the Red Death. Now, of course, you may remember that the first episode of Stories of Your and Yours featured the Cask of Amontillado. And in that episode, we hadn't yet gotten to the point where we talk about the background of the authors featured on the show. So let's get into a very brief history of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, Poe was actually born Edgar Poe, but was orphaned at only two years old, as his father abandoned the family a year after his birth in 1809, and his mother died the following year. He was taken in by John and Francis Allen, which is where the Allen in his name comes from. Poe was one of the earliest American writers who tried to make a living solely off of writing. It did not go very well. Poe became well-known after publishing The Raven, but the unreliability regarding payment of writers in those days along with the lack of copyright law, did not work in his favor. Poe moved around several times in the mid-Atlantic area of the U.S., from Boston to Philadelphia to Virginia and Baltimore, where he eventually died in 1849 of unknown causes at the age of 40, 
and really when you think about it, it wasn't too hard to die in the mid-19th century, even if you were taking care of yourself, and Poe, at this time, which was two years after the very premature death of his wife, was not exactly taking care of himself. His wife, by the way, was Virginia Clem, who was his first cousin and was 13 when they married. He was 26 at the time. They were married for 11 years until her aforementioned untimely death. Poe obviously had an enormous influence on those who came after him, especially in his most well-known genre of gothic horror. And that brings us to the pieces we'll be covering today. These pieces are all short enough that I'm just going to introduce all of them ahead of time, and then we're just going to present all three, one after the other. Now, this is a long intro already, so I'll make it brief. The Telltale Heart is our first story, and it's one of Poe's most well-known short stories. It was first published in 1843 in the first issue of a periodical known as The Pioneer. The Pioneer was a short-lived magazine published in Boston and Philadelphia. The first edition of the story was published with an epigraph quoting A Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, but that was omitted in later publications due to the fact that Poe believed that this particular poem was plagiarized by Longfellow. Our second piece today will be the poem The Raven. This is the first poem we've done on the show, and I'm including it here because despite being told in verse, it still tells quite a story. The Raven is probably Poe's most well-known work. The first verse, Once Upon a Midnight Dreary, As I Pondered Weak and Weary, along with the Raven's refrain of Nevermore, are two of the more well-known phrasings in literary history. Uh, now, as with the Cask of Amontillado, there are a couple of words that uh, I want to get out there that many people might not be familiar with, but I'll do that right before starting the story. I'll just butt in between the Telltale Heart and the Raven to throw those out there. As for the publication of The Raven, it first appeared in the American Review, which was a Whig journal, that's W-H-I-G Whig, in the February issue of 1845 under Poe's pseudonym of Quarles. It appeared under Poe's name on January 29th of that same year, 1845, so not long after the publication in the American Review, uh, in the New York Evening Mirror, which was a weekly newspaper that ran in some form or another, from 1823 to 1898. And finally this week we have The Mask of the Red Death, which was published in 1842 in Graham's Ladies and Gentlemen's Magazine. Poe actually worked at this magazine, which was based in Philadelphia, as an editor from its start in 1841 until the following year. And there's more to that story, as there is with most things concerning Poe, but in a nutshell, the magazine lived on in one form or another, with some hiatuses here and there, until 1858. And one other note, actually, Poe offered to publish The Raven in Graham's magazine late in 1844, but George Rex Graham, who was the owner of the magazine, didn't like it and turned it down. Now, if you're a first-time listener, first of all, welcome to the show, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. But secondly, know that this is by far the longest intro we've ever done here at Stories of Your and Yours. But now, that intro is over. And with that, Let's move on to this week's second feature. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe True! Nervous? Very, very dreadfully nervous I have been and am, but why will you say that I am mad? The, the disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, 
Not dull them, above all was the sense of hearing, acute. I heard all things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly, I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing, but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him, and every night about midnight I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, so that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight, but I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he has passed the night. So you see... He would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moved more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with a thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened, through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no, it was the low stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. 
I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed. His fears had ever since been growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney, it is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot out from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue and with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I refrained and I kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now, a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done, but for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by the neighbor during the night. 
Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room, and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But, ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears— but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound— much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. What could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly, smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God. No, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. Now, again, hark, louder, 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 villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. Now note about this next piece. The Raven contains a few words that our listeners may not be familiar with. First, Nepenthe. Nepenthe is a fictional drug, which was mentioned in Homer's Odyssey. It is a drug of forgetfulness, or really probably something closer to what we would consider an antidepressant today. Obviously not something that actually existed in the time of Poe, let alone Homer. Uh, quaff is also a word that shows up, and that word means to drink. There's a line in the poem that says, Quaff this kind Nepenthe, which would mean to drink this antidepressant drug. Poe also mentions the distant Aden, which is comparable to Eden, or to be more generic, paradise. 
He also mentions the bust of Pallas, which is where the raven sits. And Pallas is the Greek goddess of wisdom. Now, with all that as a prelude, please enjoy the next story. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before. So that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. "'Sir,' said I, "'or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you.' Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then the ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, 
with such a name as Nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely upon that placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if its soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, nevermore. But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking, nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, uh, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from some unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee by these angels, he hath sent thee, respite, respite and depend thee from thy memories of Lenore, Quaff, O oh, quaff, this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven. Nevermore. Be that our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadows on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore.
The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal. The redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest-ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow-men. And the whole seizure, progress and determination of the disease, were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding chairs slide nearly to the walls on either hand so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was finished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet, the seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or a candelabrum, amid the profusion of gold ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing the brazier of a fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. 
but in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance, to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then there were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great feat, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. But sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked in fact a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And, anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays of the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. 
and the revel went worryingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock, and then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things, as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sank into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz, or a murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-Heroded Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, now seemed deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all of this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around, but the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. "'Who dares?' he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. "'Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him, and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements!' It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a groom of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and, while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centres of the rooms to the walls. He made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. 
It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuosity to three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped, gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and, seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall, and the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Well, out of those three stories, there are not many happy endings to be found today. You know, I've wondered, as I've looked for good stories to tell here on the show, why it is that I often return to the dark subject matter. Now, full disclosure, I am a pretty big fan of horror fiction in more than one medium, but I think it's more than that. I think even with the passing of several years and even decades and into centuries, what's funny or adventurous or thrilling some of it still resonates, but much of it changes with the passage of time. But what scares us, whether it's the supernatural, or whether it's the very human conditions of madness, loss, disease, and famine, those scares, they are timeless. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours. If you did, spread the word. Of course, there's always the social media route sharing posts from facebook.com slash syypodcast, retweeting and liking on Twitter and Instagram at SYY Podcast. But tell your friends, too. Word of mouth is still a thing, whether the word is digital or verbal, and I appreciate everyone who has spread the word thus far. A little in-house note, we've hit a record download numbers in each of the last three weeks, but don't let that fool you. There are a lot more records to be broken, and there are a lot more people out there I think who will enjoy the show, so don't hesitate to tell them about it. And, of course, consider heading over to iTunes slash Apple Podcast and giving the show a rating and review. Every review that's left will be read on the show. I'll have background music for all of them, and if the occasion calls for it, there are sound effects to be had as well. Big thanks to those who have reviewed the show thus far, and to Matt McNish, the author of our first original work presented here on the show. Now, don't let Matt remain the lone living author to have his work read on this show. Send your stories to syypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks as always to Free PD for the music you've heard on this and all episodes of Stories of Your and Yours. 
We also pulled some music from IncomTech.com this week as well. And that is the website for one Kevin McLeod, who does a lot of work for FreePD as well. And thanks as well to Freesound.org for sound effects. Whatever sound effects I can't record in the studio, I get from Freesound.org. For a full list of credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now next week, we're going to go with some lighter fare. And we'll visit an author who was famous for his humor and for his countless well-known quotes. Even though you've probably seen a bunch of quotes attributed to him that he never said. Now, mind you, I did use this tease last week. And, uh, well, I messed up. I kind of got my episodes out of order. But we're back on track now. So, until next week, this has been episode 10 of Stories of Your and Yours. I have been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 